welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In recent years, many of you have heard the terms undocumented immigrants, DACA, DREAMers, and other more profane and racist terms for individuals who have immigrated into the United States for one purpose or another. Most of you, however, have not heard of documented DREAMers, which refers to a class of immigrants who reside in the country legally as a result of a variety of work and student visas. In the past fiscal year, more than 330,000 new and existing H-1 work visas were approved in the United States, which provide legal status to highly skilled workers, usually employed in high-tech positions. Normally, more than 500,000 of these visas are issued each year. According to a recent survey, more than 75% of these recipients go to people who are located in India. Of that number, more than 7,700 were awarded to individuals who reside now in North Carolina. H-1 visas go to employees were allowed to come into the country as workers, while the H-4 visa is used by family members who join their spouses and their children. While the children are allowed to attend schools and engage in other activities, the spouses, no matter the degree of job skills or, or education, are usually not allowed to work unless they are able to separately obtain their own work visas. As for the children, no matter how educated or talented they become, they age out of the H-4 status at 21 years of age and are in danger of deportation unless the family member obtains a permanent resident green card. According to the Cato Institute, more than 10,000 young people age out of their H-4 status or green card eligibility each year. During this long process, many highly educated individuals who have perfected their knowledge and skills are forced to leave the United States and take with them this wealth of capabilities, talents, and skills which could be better used to develop this country. As a result of this annual brain drain, Congresswoman Deborah Ross, along with a bipartisan group of other legislators in the US Senate and in the House of Representatives, introduced the Americans Children Act, which would provide an easier path for these individuals to obtain permanent residency 
after residing in this country for at least 10 years and obtaining a degree from an institution of higher education. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the immigration process with two individuals who have been involved in immigration efforts from different perspectives. It is an honor, of course, to welcome back to our Zoom studio an NCCU Law School alum who specializes in immigration law, attorney Jawanda Jones, the senior managing attorney at the Erickson Immigration Group in Arlington, Virginia. And we also welcome Mr. Venkatin Kosori, an engineer and a triangle resident who is an advocate who has experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of the American immigration process and presently is a green card holder. So to the two of you, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Professor Well, let me just start out with uh, with Attorney Attorney Jones, since you were one of our uh, students here at the law school some years ago, and I won't talk about the number of years. And now you are with the uh, Erickson uh, Immigration uh, Group in uh, uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia. How did you get involved in the uh, in immigration law and uh, enhance your knowledge about the immigration process? So um, I've been involved in immigration law since I was probably 12 because I am an immigrant, I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I was born in Liberia. Um, I was actually naturalized after my 1L year um, in Professor Dawson's class. So I started in immigration because my mom is a nervous person and she would make me stand with her as she read every notice and made me repeat it um, to make sure I understood my situation in America. You know, how I was here, how we as a family were here and functioning and the importance of that. So I basically started doing paperwork when I was 12 and um, I went into law school not wanting to not knowing what I wanted. And then I realized I definitely was not a trial attorney and I ended up with some internships um, in immigration. And that's where I learned the employment side with H1Bs and H4s. And then after I graduated, I just kind of went, went that route. So that's how I got involved in immigration. Okay. And Mr. Kasori, uh, can you tell our audience uh, about your immersion into the immigration uh, process of, and the long journey <laughs> that uh, sure. it took for you to uh, become a, a green card holder uh, here in, uh, in the U.S.? Sure, Professor. So I came to the country in uh, 2005 as a student to pursue my graduate pro, uh, graduate degree. Um, I started out uh, in 2005 and I graduated in 2007. Since then, um, uh, I've, 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 I wanted to live my life here because this is the country that I wanted to live in. Uh, so for the path to do, to do that is to get uh, an, a visa, a work visa, and that's when I got my H-1B visa in 2008. Um, everything seemed fine when I first started out. But after a while, it, I realized that I may have to 
be on an H-1B visa for the most of my life uh, because of uh, a specific uh, caveat in the immigration law that we have, which is called, which is known as the per country cap for employment-based green cards. Because I am born in a country that is more populous compared to the other countries in the world, there is a severe backlog for people born in populous countries uh, to get their green cards. So even though I applied for my green card in that I started the process in 2010, uh, and I just got my green card in like two months ago. So it just it only took two 12 years. Uh, <laughs> but I'm 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 one of those people who got it easy, I would say. But I'm through through the course of my uh, journey. I've met with several people who had it way worse than what I've had. So uh, I'm in no way trying to say that, oh, I had a hard time because I've met people who have had terrible time. A lot of them having um, kids on being on H-4 visa and not being able to uh, continue their journey because on, on their parents' thing because they turned 21. And, and not just that, I've uh, had uh, scenarios where where uh, uh, H4B, H4 uh, spouses um, um, couldn't get out of the marriage because of the dependency and that they're, they're kind of stuck in that marriage because of that dependency on that green card. So there are some um, heartbreaking stories that I've had to go through. Um, but uh, it, it, what led me to be interested in this is the analysis that I tried to see. Like, why am I waiting? Why is this happening to me. That's when I realized that this arbitrary country cap is what is is causing me not be treated as an equal individual just because of my country of birth. So that's when I started uh, understanding what the process is, uh, what is the legislative process to change things, why it was started out the way it started out, how, how it can be changed. And as part of that, um, you uh, raised uh, Congresswoman Deborah Ross's name, and um, she's a great champion of this uh, whole whole issue. Uh, in addition to the uh, the uh, America's Children's Act that you uh, mentioned in your um, in your monologue, um, she also is a great champion of another bill called Eagle Act. It's literally called Eagle Act. Uh, it stands for uh, Equal Access to green cards for legal employment. What it does is it ends the antiquated per country caps on uh, employment-based green cards so that everyone is treated equally irrespective of their country of birth. Currently under the civil rights law, an employer cannot consider uh, immutable characteristics of an employee when they're making that employment decision like their race, color, country of birth, and all of the national origin. But for that same job that I got hired for, if I'm applying for a green card, now I'm waiting 70 years, or like according to Cato Institute that you uh, were uh, referring to, one of the reports cites that it, <laughs> a person getting into a green card backlog born in a country like India might have to wait 195 years to get their green card. They'll be long dead. They won't be alive. So they won't see uh, the ability to get a green card just because of where they were born. So that's unfair. So uh, I've been part of an advocacy movement that 
is trying to get rid of that per country cap. And uh, hopefully we will be able to uh, get that done. So that's uh, well, a let, brief introduction of what yeah. I, and how I got involved in this. Okay, let me just switch back to uh, Attorney Jones uh, for a second, because there, there are a number of different uh, H-series visas that's there, and H-1 is just one of several that's there. Can you kind of explain to our audience, because many of us don't know, I mean, this is uh, new new information uh, for us. But what are the different types of uh, H visas that are issued uh, by uh, by the United States, and who is eligible to become a part of each of those categories? Okay, um, an easy way to think about it, uh, visas as a whole is an alphabet soup. So different visas have a different letter, whether it be H, A, E, et cetera, right? Um, the employment visas are the H-1B, um, H-4 is their dependent. There's a TN, that's for folks who are from um, Mexico and Canada. There are E-3s which are specifically for um, Australian nationals. And then there's something called an H-1B1, which is carved out specifically for Chilean and Singaporean nationals, right? And then there's also an L-1, which is a very popular work visa. It's an intra-company transfer, meaning if I work for a company X in the UK or India, and I've worked for a year, I can come to the U.S., transferred to the U.S. entity. And then there, there's O's, which is another popular visa, and that's for outstanding researchers and et cetera within the field. Now, the H-1B1 is where um, it's, it's it has the most controversy. So an H-1B visa, to qualify for an H-1B visa, um, the job you are working must be what is deemed a specialty occupation, meaning that at least a bachelor's degree is um, needed to perform the, posi uh, the position. So again, accountant, um, computer, computer scientist, um, logistician, statistician, you name it, those are the jobs we have there. Um, there is a lottery each year, um, which a new class will um, we'll have the opportunity to vie for 85,000 slots, right? 20,000 of those slots are earmarked for those who have finished um, a master's degree or higher within the U.S., um, which is what um, Vicata was explaining when he finished schooling here. He, got, he um, went for the lottery for that particular um, slot. So technically, if you come to the U.S. on an F-1, which is a student visa, and you finish your bachelor's degree and you, you, you do your master's, you're looking for a job to sponsor you in this lottery until you're selected. And you have, from post-graduation, essentially you have 36 months to be picked in this lottery for this visa. And um, so you're looking at mostly the industries that utilize um, this particular H-1B visa would be the tech industries, um, the software companies, the software developers. Um, there's a special caveat under H-1Bs for, um, for nonprofits, universities, hospitals, but that's, that's capped exempt. And it's completely different from um, these group of foreign nationals who are capped subject that have the, 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 um, the long backlog to their green card journey. Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 it sounds complicated, 
Uh, and it is complicated. And that's why you have lawyers involved that can seek to simplify the uh, process. But as I understand it, uh, the H-1 visa is really a visa that is for the benefit of the employer. Uh, and the uh, employer has the, uh, the right or the uh, authority to exercise that. And the person who is granted an H-1, uh, I guess H-1B visa, is really here at the discretion of the employer and in that sense has no rights uh, above uh, uh, what the employer will allow them to do. But I'm gonna come back because uh, we have to take a break uh, right now and uh, talk a little bit more about the entitlement process uh, with respect to these uh, H-type uh, uh, visas and to help our audience better understand this very uh, convoluted and complicated uh, process that ensnares literally hundreds of thousands of people uh, in this uh, country. So hang on, stay with us. We will be right back to uh, continue this uh, discussion about the uh, U.S. Uh, immigration visa uh, process. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Our guests uh, tonight are Attorney Jawanda uh, Jones, who is an immigration law specialist with the uh, Erickson Immigration Group in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, Mr. Venkati Missouri, uh, who is a uh, immigration advocate uh, and a, uh, just recently obtained his, uh, his green card. And we're talking about the immigration process for uh, H-1 and H-4 uh, visas. And uh, when we took our break, I was attempting to form a question uh, for Attorney Jones about the rights uh, that uh, the visa holders have as opposed to the visa sponsors. Uh, 
and uh, who controls that uh, the use of and availability of the uh, of those uh, visas. So, if you could just start us off uh, with that, that would would help us. So yes, so to get an H and B, your employer has to sponsor you, which means um, the employer is liaising with an attorney to prepare the petition to provide the supporting documents. Um, to say that they're offering you a job at this location with this salary. These are your job duties. Um, this is your education. And H-1B is issued for in increments of three years for the start of six years. Now, I will say I have been very fortunate in my career that the clients I represent are advocates for immigration and they support their employees day one. They, they start the process. They do whatever they can to ensure um, to minimize the impact and the burden of the long process. But there are some companies out there that are not um, capable or it's not their, um, their, their, their thought process to provide that type of like, you work here after 90 days, I'm starting your green card application. You know, so there are some people who who start H-1Bs and they may be with a, cons a consulting company or a, a smaller um, uh, tech company and they have to change jobs within the initial six years to get them to a company that can support their green card status, meaning they are ready to engage with a lawyer, pay the necessary fees for the employee, their spouses, their children, et cetera, where, you know, there are companies where if you run out of that six, six um, year runway, they, they may offshore you um, to another entity till you can get what you need to come back to the U S to work. So it really is, it's, it's a very um, employers who support immigration. They're more competitive in their hiring. Um, and we see people go there and the employers, they, it's, it's a cost benefit analysis, right? You're going to have this great employee and you, you would love this employee, um, but you have to be able to keep them there. And the long processing times um, makes it extremely difficult um, for that. It definitely is, you know, a benefit for the employee because our um, employer, excuse me, because, um, the employees um, that I'm seeing for these these companies, are, you know, our master's holders, our PhD holders, our bachelor's degree holders, with numerous of years of of experience within the in the tech company, and they are making all of these cool products and and helping us. You know, I think with the pandemic, you know, these CRM companies thrived so much um, with their H1B population being able to develop and help us continue remote work and have the, the working world continue. And so um, as Irv mentioned, this is a very complex area um, when folks who are um, thinking about uh, their immigration status, thinking about their future, you really do need to be forward thinking. So it's not one of those things where you can be reactive. You've got to know what's coming ahead, which means that you have to get um, competent legal counsel. Can, um, Mr. Kasuri, can you talk about what your approach was when you began your immigration journey and um, how you were able to, or if you were able to avail yourself of legal counsel to help you navigate this incredibly complicated area. 
So yes, so when I started out, uh, as as uh, uh, um, uh, Ms. Jones explained, that uh, the employer part is uh, for employ applying for the H-1B visa. Since then, as an employee, I don't have the uh, necessary uh, uh, privilege to go and talk to the attorney myself, but I have to work through my employer as an intermediary to ask about my concerns specific to the H-1B visa. However, when it comes to my H-4 or my dependents visa, my, like my spouse or my kids uh, who were not born in this country, uh, that's when I can interact with the attorneys directly because it's an individual application and I am the client of the attorney. And so uh, when, when it comes to H-1B visa, the employer is the client and not the employee. So in my experience, I've been fortunate enough that my employer and my attorneys were so uh, cooperative in every which way that I've, it was a breeze for me, but I've seen numerous examples where it wasn't the case. And it not just is limited to uh, understanding what the law is, but the interpretation of it changes depending on who's occupying the White House. For example, uh, when the INA law passed, which created the H-1B visa, that was in 1990, uh, there was a certain interpretation that carried on for a while. In 2010, um, uh, I think there was a memo called Newfield Memo that got introduced by uh, 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 Obama administration that placed certain restrictions on how or which companies can um, uh, get uh, uh, get these H-1B visas, and for what duration can they get? Uh, that kind of led to some uh, uh, various issues for a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, engineers like me. But then, in 2016, when the Trump administration came in, they started doing a lot more things than what was done previously, and. In in addition to that, they 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 made it so um, diffi difficult at that time that for my spouse. So usually, whenever I have to renew my visa, I would uh, apply for a renewal of my H one B and my uh, wife's H four visa. Uh, the H four visa requires another sep separate kind of a form, uh, and H one B requires a separate kind of a form there is an availability of uh, something called a premium processing that you can pay for an additional fee to get it done quickly, but only for the H-1B visa, but not for the H-4 visa. Trump administration, uh, uh, DHS, implemented a new rule saying that every time my wife has to renew my visa, she has to actually go to a USCIS application center and submit her biometrics to, to prove that she's the same person that she was like what, three years ago or whenever she has <laughs> been. And because these application support centers are so backlogged, it used to, so what used to take about a month started taking 18 months. And now if my, because my wife's uh, work status is, is not dependent on my H1B visa, now she was waiting for her work status to be authorized for 18 months. I've, I've known so many spouses who, who've lost their jobs because of such changes. So the law hasn't changed, the statute hasn't changed, but that based on who's occupying the uh, White House, 
the interpretation keeps changing and it kind of affects negatively for the employees and also the employers, obviously, because if the H-1B visa holder is not, I mean, I, I may be able to keep working for the employer, but the employee, my, my spouse is not able to work. I'm, I'm not happy, you know? So there are several things that are going on there, but uh, luckily I've, it was a breeze for me, but it wasn't uh, the case for a lot of my um, uh, friends and colleagues. And I just want to add to that. So under the Obama administration, when we filed a case for a family and its premium process, um, premium process would take 15 days and they would give a courtesy and, a, and um, approve the dependents within those 15 days. Under the Trump administration, they stopped giving that courtesy. They started um, approving it separately. As Vincenzo said, it would take months for the for the um, H-4 spouse to get their approval. And I will say the majority of folks in H-4 status are women. Um, so it impacts women the most. Um, we do live in a country that a lot of households depend on the dual income. Um, so you have to just think about the added stress of needing the dual income and not having that. Uh, the stress of having, you know, an educated professional woman who is not able to advance her career because she is literally dependent upon this piece of paper. And I can only imagine, you know, the stress families are going, you know, enduring th through this um, because of the long processing times. Yeah. And, and, and with the, uh, the H4 uh, status that uh, applies to uh, family members, uh, there is an age limitation uh, for other than the wife. So for the children, uh, once they reach uh, 21 years of age, then they are off of the H-4 visa and have to get their own. Can you kind of talk about the, um, uh, the impact of that on the, uh, on the children, uh, particularly those children who are brought here at an early age and educated here uh, for uh, a decade or more uh, and grow up in the uh, American culture, uh, what happens to them when they age out and they are unable to uh, independently secure visa status of, on their own? So um, that's something that I always think about a lot because I grew up in a household where my sister's a U.S. citizen and I wasn't. So um, I can empathize. So I, these are the children who were born previously before their parents came to the U.S. They will age out at 21 and they cannot, then they have to join a whole different processing to, and to have a green card. So ideally, if you're an H-1B holder, you would like to have your green card application filed before any dependent child is really nearing 21, because then it's a safe harbor position, uh, position for them. So their application will continue to process with you as a family. If that's not possible, what we're seeing is um, these children will then have to switch to student visas to remain in the U.S. with their family if if that's possible, right? They will then have to obtain their bachelor's degree um, and their master's degree and so on, and then fall into the same cycle that their parents were in, which is looking for an employer to sponsor them to get their own H-1B. Um, and this is if they 
are not marrying a U.S. citizen partner, you know, in the meantime. Um, I've seen clients where some of their children will just, you know, go back to their home country. But if you have a child who's been in the U.S., you know, living in RTP in Durham, in Holly Springs or, you know, where I grew up since they were five, and then they have to go back to their home country and they're without their parents. Their parents are still here. They're still at the working age. They may have siblings that are U.S. citizens, you know, that that are able to to, um, to stay here. You also have to think about it when you're on a, a visa. There are certain travel permissions you need to be able to exit the U.S. in a visa stamp. So the family can just not pick up you know, as they were all U.S. citizens and go on a vacation, you know, they need a visa. <laughs> like you're, you need to make sure the visa is in your child's passport. That means your dad's application, you know, for the example we're using, has to be filed timely, you know, and your mom's application has to be filed timely. And then you cannot get a visa stamp in your passport in the U.S. No, you have to travel abroad, right? So you have to make a trip about it, go to your home country, make a visa appointment at a consulate and it's been COVID. So you can only imagine how hard it is to get an appointment. Wait there, get the travel pass in your passport for you to return to the U.S. to be able to travel freely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would like to add to that. Um, um, I'll first give you some of the caveats that are involved in the H4 uh, kids uh, you know, journey. And I'll give you a couple of examples as well that the heartbreaking examples that I couldn't fathom that they were going through. Um, the first thing is the student visa that we, that uh, uh, Ms. Jones specified about, that the, there, there may be an option for some of the kids who age out if they want to come back on a student visa, they can. But the, the nature of the student visa is uh, consi by, considered by the consulates outside of the um, U.S. is that it's a non-immigrant visa. Whenever you're applying for a non-immigrant visa in a consulate, you have to prove the intent that you have ties to the home country that you were born in, that you have strong ties, that you will come back uh, to that country. But these are the kids who grew up for like the past 20 years of their life in the U.S., and they have no ties to the country they were born in, but they have to prove it somehow. And because of that, uh, there's you see the you see the conundrum they're in. It, it was such a heartbreaking thing uh, to hear from a. I, I met uh, I, I met with the I met with the person who was explaining his journey for me. Uh, his mom, uh, he, his mom brought both the kids when on an H one B visa when she in like uh, late two thousands. Um. So these kids were born in India, but they grew up their entirety of the elementary, middle, and high school in the U.S. But they, her, because she was born in India, her backlog, the green card backlog, was so long that she didn't, the mom didn't get the green card until the kids turned 21. So both of the kids separately had to go back to India, stay for a year, prove that they have some sort of a tie with the community in India, and then get an F1B, F1 student visa and come back here, graduate from that F1 visa, apply for an H1B, and then get their own H1B. So the mom, kids, had, had the same visa because just because they were born in a specific country. Otherwise, like if they were born in any other country than India or some of the populous, uh, other populous countries, 
this, they wouldn't have to go through this. That was one of the heartbreaking things that I had to hear. And the other was uh, one of my friends, I don't want to take names, but he has two kids. The kid, the elder kid was born in India, but he went to elementary, middle, and high school here. The younger kid was born here, but she's a special needs child. So suddenly, randomly in 2015 or 16, his visa for as some for some reason, for some bureaucratic reason, the visa officer decided that this person who stayed in the country for about more than a decade on the same visa in the same job is no longer eligible to get that visa. Overnight, he had to take his kid out of the high school and the special needs US citizen child back to India because of some bureaucratic mess. It was such a heartbreaking story for me, uh, but the good news is that they, they're back now and they got their green card, but they didn't have to go through that is what is, is my point I'm trying to make. So there's this heartbreaking things that kids have to go through while staying on H1. And um, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm trying as much as I can to see if that it doesn't happen. Um, if I may, there's another H4 uh, um, story. Uh, a person named Srinivas Kuchibotla was visiting a bar in Kansas in 2017 when a racist person decided that he they didn't belong there and he, he shot them. Overnight, his wife, who was on an H-4 visa, lost her status. And she was, she had no other option than to decide whether she wanted to be in the country here or go back to country she didn't know for a decade. So these, there, there are so many heartbreaking stories that people on H-4 visa are, have been going through for such a long time that um, it has to be reformed in some way. And hopefully the Eagle Act or the Children's Act, when, when they pass, it'll provide some relief. But there's a lot of other work that needs to be done to improve the system as well. Yes, those are definitely um, heartbreaking stories. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be able to talk about efforts to try to reform. Um, I, I do have a couple of other questions about consequences to those that um, have the H-4 visas. So um, one of the things that Attorney Jones mentioned is that it's primarily women. Um, one of the things that you, Mr. Kasori, mentioned um, is that if a woman needs to get out of a marriage, but she is tied to her spouse because of the H-4. So explore some of that. Um, and then also, again, talk about legislative and advocacy efforts to try and improve the situation. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We've been talking this hour about immigration-related issues as it relates to the H-1B visa, the H-4 visa. There's a lot to unpack here. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, NCCU Law alum, Jawanda Jones. She is the Senior Managing Attorney at the Erickson Immigration Group in Arlington, Virginia. And Mr. Venkata Kasori, he is an engineer, a Triangle resident, and a green card holder. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. 
The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU's School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about H-1B visas, H-4 visas, and the complicated area of immigration law. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, NCCU Law alum, Jawanda Jones. She is the senior managing attorney at the Erickson Immigration Group in Arlington, Virginia. And Mr. Venkata Kasori, he is an engineer, a triangle resident, and a green card holder. Uh, Mr. Kasori, you were talking about before our last break about some of the heartbreaking stories that um, arise as it relates to H-1B holders who um, may suffer um, harm or job loss and the impact that that has on their family members who may have an H-4 visa. Um, One of the things that has been in the news quite a bit recently is layoffs of individuals who are in tech companies. So Twitter, of course, but there have been a lot of layoffs in a lot of our tech companies, Um, and many of them are H-1B visa holders. Uh, Before we talk about the legislation and kind of the advocacy efforts, can each of you kind of talk about how this is impacting um, the community of those that have these types of visas. And Attorney Jones, let's start with you. Okay, so really quickly, under the regulations, if there is a reduction in force, a RIF, um, for the position and location, so let's say hypothetically, software engineers for this company in Durham, they've been laid off. That means the colleagues who remain that have a visa for this position, depending on where they are in the green card stage, there has to be a pause and their green card case cannot proceed for a period essentially of six months, 180 days. So the rifts that are happening now within these tech companies, um, yes, people are fortunate that they're keeping their jobs, but depending on where you are in the green card stage, you're losing six months of processing your case. And like I said earlier, with the extremely long processing times, you can't afford to lose the six months. Additionally, if you're laid off and you have some sort of work visa, H-1B, et cetera, you then now have 60 days to find a new H-1B sponsoring employer um, to be able to remain in the U.S. Or if you're fortunate, your spouse has their own H-1B, you can change to an H-4 status, but then you have to file 
um, a, an EAD application. And again, with the long processing times, you may not receive that H4 EAD application for a period of more than 10 months. So you're, you can remain with your family. However, you will not have work authorization while you're here. Mr. Kasuri, can you talk about the um, advocacy efforts that are going on? So you are, you know, um, in this space as someone who has had to navigate the process and you're also an advocate. Can you talk one about um, your advocacy efforts and how they are being received within the community? Okay, so for the past seven years or so, I've been part of a grassroots advocacy moment, uh, specifically to get rid of the uh, per country caps on employment-based green cards. Uh, for, as part of that effort, uh, we've been advocating and meeting with several Congress people and senators. Um, I personally met with all 13 uh, offices of uh, uh, North Carolina Congress people at, in, in different times. Uh, and within Triangle, Congressman Price, Congressman Butterfield, um, Congresswoman Alma Adams uh, from uh, outside the area, uh, have been great champions of this cause for a very long time. Um, and uh, lately, uh, Congresswoman um, uh, Deborah Ross has been an original co-sponsor of the Eagle Act that would get rid of this per country caps. Um, from the chatter that I'm hearing, there's actually a, a, an effort right now to tr try and bring that bill up for a vote next week. So hopefully, if it passes the House, which this a version of this bill passed uh, with 389 votes in 2011, with 360-ish uh, votes in 2018. And this is the third time that we're trying to get it passed in the House. In the, in the Senate, the same version of that bill in 2020, uh, I think, it passed unanimously in Senate. But due to some other external factors, it did not get through the president's desk and become a law. That's why we are trying to do as much as possible to educate the, not just the community, but my neighbors and everyone that what we are seeking as part of this effort is that we are seeking to be treated equally irrespective of our immutable characteristics like country of birth and other factors. You know? uh, in addition to that, um, um, uh, 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 Children's Act is a, an additional step. It's the next step to what we are trying to achieve where uh, passing the Act helps the kids not to age out and gives them the permanent solution that they need. But there's several kids who have already aged out. I think the Children's Act tries to uh, address those issues as well. So uh, uh, hopefully something will pass uh, soon. Uh, we, I personally am making every effort to reach out to the Congress people and the senators to uh, make them understand how it's affecting the community. Um, uh, there's been several efforts where I've had to reach out to uh, Senator Tillis, Senator Burr, Senator Congressman Deborah Ross for a lot of uh, uh, families that got impacted by um, somebody passing away. You know? um, so uh, everyone has been cooperative and understanding of our issue. At the same time, there are several opponents to what our efforts are going on and their reasons are um, some of them are straightforward. Some of them are very um, a bit. Um, they're they're trying to act in, in in the best interests of people who are abusing the current system and profiting off of it. Those people don't want uh, 
this change to happen. So there are some covert efforts by those such groups. Um, uh, and there is also some certain groups uh, that, that don't like any kind of immigrants. You know? um, um, one of the groups that uh, actually uh, is opposing our bill has been characterized as a hate group by Southern Poverty Law Center as well. I don't want to take names, but um, when, when I hear such things that, okay, what I'm doing is being opposed by a hate group, I, I think I'm on the right path. That's what I feel. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get to the uh, finish line and uh, provide the relief to the community that's much needed. Well, with, with, with all advocacy, there is uh, strong pushback. And uh, you've mentioned uh, some of it already. Let me though just kind of ask about uh, the uh, abuse of the process. Uh, is there wide, is there evidence of widespread abuse of the uh, visa process in favor of uh, unscrupulous uh, employers uh, who uh, misuse those individuals that uh, they end up as sponsors and and resulting in uh, a kind of oppressive condition that uh, that they fight that they face. Attorney uh, Jones, you want to start with that since you're the lawyer. <laughs> um, like I said before, I'm very fortunate with the clients I have and what they do. Um, for their employees and, and the type of care. Now, um, within the industry, there are situations where um, H1B holders are essentially tied to a job. Um, I'm trying to think of a better phrase, but I would say sort of indentured servitude kind of thing, right? They're, they're, they're dangling a carrot over over your head. You know, what we all want, you know, in life and in this country is to pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, et cetera, right? And you're you're going into a job and you're working your tail off day in and day out, 40, 50, 80 hours, et cetera. And you know, you're given the runaround regarding your paperwork, when it's going to start, how soon it's going to start. And I will say under the, the regulations, a lot of the fees are um, the employer is is responsible for, right? Um, so it be, it's definitely, is, it can be um, an imbalance system um, of power um, dynamics. Um, it's It can be very unfair. Um, I don't like the words that are, are still being used within this community. You know, people get an A number, which refers to alien and, you know, human beings are not alien. It, the whole system itself I mean, if they will let me fix it, I could fix it in about a week. I have thoughts, um, but they're not going to they're not going to let me do that. But yes, um, there are a lot of people who are under a time clock of six years and tremendous stress and they are tax paying individuals within the United States living their lives, contributing to society, culture and and the things we hold dear. So, yes. So. To address that same question, Professor, uh, there's two aspects to it. There's a direct fraud by unscrupulous companies that they that they tend to do anything for money. You know, try to keep these people uh, in 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 an in, in indentured servitude, so form of uh, kind of a uh, 
state and try to make as much money as possible, not giving them enough raises and et cetera. But there's also a subtle part to some of the household, some of the employers, unscrupulous employers behave in the way that if I'm, if there's two people, uh, one uh, a native US, US citizen and uh, another uh, an H-1B visa holder who uh, for, for specifically from a populist country who might not get a Greek card right away, an employer might indirectly try to prefer hiring an H-1B visa candidate for the reason, not being not because they have to pay them less or anything. It's just that for that employee, it's so hard to change a job that you are indirectly using it as an employee retention tool, the H-1B visa, you know? So for, for a native US citizen, all he has to do is just find another job, apply for it, clear the interview, you're done. But for the for the person on an H-1B visa, he has to clear the interview, and then he has to clear, uh, get some sort of an approval from the attorney representing the employer, saying that, yes, this person actually fits the process. And I think we can go through this bureaucratic um, mess that we have to go through with DOL, DHS, and all of those agencies. And it, it kind of discourages the employee to try and see if he can pursue better opportunities, you know, like that, that, that he may deserve. So that's that's another thing that uh, some of the unscrupulous companies, they don't necessarily um, keep the employee unhappy, but then they are kind of indirectly stopping their progress and, and using that as an employee retention tool, you know. Um, one other aspect that I wanted to touch on was um, intellectual property. So if there is a material scientist or, or somebody in, a, in an industry, emerging industry, that the H1B employee is trying to uh, work on, and then he comes up with a brilliant idea that he wants to patent. He does not have that right to do it himself. He has to use his employer, and now his employer owns that patent that intellectual property, just because he was on that visa. Otherwise, this person could have just gotten out of the company, set up his own startup, and then have that intellectual property for himself because of the hard work that he did, right? But that, that's also some of the things that uh, kind of affect uh, people stuck in this um, H1B visa. Yes, this has been a really fascinating and insightful conversation. There's so much that we could continue to unpack here. We only have a few minutes left. Um, Attorney Jones, could you just quickly kind of share with our listening audience if there is someone who has some immigration issues, whether it's related to H-1B visas or H-4 or, or any of the many visas that you've talked about and immigration issues, um, what suggestions would you give someone who, who needs some assistance in this space? Uh, the first suggestion, although the, the blogs and the forms can be very helpful, um, sometimes they cause um, confusion and unnecessary panic. I would definitely, depending on your employer, talk to the attorney um, that's working on your case, know your case history. You can also um, find your own personal attorney um, to, to correspond with. Um, uh, my colleagues in this field that, you know, we do this work, we really do care. And, you know, we understand 
you know, the burdens and you should really talk to your attorney regarding your specific facts um, and, you know, try to minimize, you know, getting outside help from, from friends to certain things. Cause every situation is, it's, it's very nuanced and, and special. Thank you for that. Mr. Kasura, do you have any final thoughts you want to add before we sign off here? Um, no, it's, I just would like to thank you for giving me the, this opportunity to explain the process that we had to go through. And hopefully it will uh, help us get the system changed for the better. Excellent. Well, but thank you both very much for your time and, and sharing your experiences, your personal experiences, and also your professional experiences with us. We'd like to thank our guests for their insight. We have NCCU Law School alum, Jawanda Jones. She is the Senior Managing Attorney at the Erickson Immigration Group in Arlington, Virginia. And Mr. Venkata Kasuri, an engineer and triangle resident and green card holder. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.